Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, the radio chick, Annie Ubellis. Join Annie on Tuesdays and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with an open chat room full of her regulars. And yes, you can even call in. Call 917-889-3675. That's 917-889-3675 to be a part of the action on the phone line. Not able to listen live? Not a problem. You can always catch Annie, the radio chick, and Southern Sense Talk Radio podcast in archives at southern-sense.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Southern Sense the right way. a mile a minute and I forgot to unmute myself. Curtis, you should have been talking in my place. Thanks. Oh, man, I'm talking away a mile a minute. No one knows. You're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, High Plains Daily News, also up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, iHeart, oh, God, Facebook, everywhere else. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I can't even talk now. I'm your hostess with the most is the radio chick, Annie, along with my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett, who let me down again, Curtis. <laughs> so. Hey, I, I didn't know if I went down because it's raining and storming here, so I thought for a second perhaps I went down. <laughs> but <laughs> no. I don't know. Annie forgot to unmute herself again, once again. <laughs> Leave it to her. <laughs> Anyway, we got a lot to talk about today. We've got great guests. We've got Edwin Duterte, who's running for uh, Congress in the California 43rd District. He's trying to win the primary to go up against Maxine Waters. It's about time she retires. So he'll be starting off the show. He's excited to be on with us. Uh, it's then going to be followed with two guests at the same time. Karen Strayan, who you remember, she was on a show recently. She wor- She's with a AVoiceForMen.com. Uh, she's going to be talking about men's rights along with Dr. Paul Nathanson. And he's got four different books out there on Miss Andre, uh, you know, the, uh, the men's rights movement. Uh, it's going to be a very interesting show. I think the second half, you and I just can basically sit back and let them go at it. <laughs> Anyway, I want to welcome everyone that's starting to show up in the chat rooms. Uh, I'm going to try to make sure I keep my eyes over on Facebook and YouTube. It's a little hard because, like I said, I switch between two computers here. So if you see me go a little off screen, that's what I'm doing. Uh, But we're here. We're ready to rock and roll. Are you? Yep. And uh, I just wanted to say, um, as you know, we, we had another shooting at a school. So maybe maybe some of our guests can uh, enlighten us today before the show's over. Uh, yeah, um, matter of fact, uh, we are probably add a little bit to that uh, what's going on out there. And just bear with me because I see I just screwed up something here too. Uh, we getting ready to do our dedication, and I don't have that video set up yet. And I apologize for that. You know, I can't I can't do everything all at once. 
so let's just bear with me for a second. This will only take a split second to get this all up here and uh, make sure I got the right person and just flipping it in, insert, and okay, and we're ready to go. All right, those that listen to our show know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to Police Officer Chase Lee Maddox of the Locust Grove Police Department in Georgia. His end of watch was Friday, February 9th of this year. And this is by Chelsea Prince of the Henry Herald. And it reads, Five days after the initial fatal shooting of Officer Chase Maddox, the Locust Grove community is still attempting to make sense of his seemingly senseless killing. Maddox, 26, was shot three times while assisting two Henry County Sheriff deputies attempting to serve a warrant at a St. Francis court home on Friday, February 9, 2018, in the morning. An autopsy revealed the fatal shot was sustained to his head. An autopsy also performed on Terry Guthrie, 39, the man who shot Maddox. Guthrie was shot four times, with two of those rounds to his chest, according to the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Deputies Ralph Sidwell Calloway and Mike Corley were also wounded, but are expected to recover. Sheriff Keith McBriar said in a press conference, the deputies were attempting to serve Guthrie an arrest warrant for failure to appear when it became obvious that the individual was not going to go. Maddox was called in for backup. According to the GBI, a fight ensued, resulting in Guthrie and the officers firing their weapons. Guthrie was shot and died at the scene. Both Deputy Calloway and Deputy Corley were wounded and taken to Atlanta Medical Center. Corley, who was shot in his protective vest, was treated and released. Calloway was shot in the lower abdomen, but is in stable condition. Maddox was pronounced dead at the Atlanta Medical Center. Little is known about the charge that brought the deputies to Guthrie's door through GBI said it regarded traffic violations, and McBriar said it originated in Locust Grove Municipal Court. A records clerk at the Locust Grove Police Department said that all records pertaining to Guthrie had been turned over to the GBI. Maddox was just days away from becoming a father, welcoming home a baby boy, his second with wife Alex Maddox. City officials announced the baby's birth on the following Tuesday, four days after his death. A graduate of Ola High School, Maddox was a five-year veteran of the Locust Grove Police Department who had served with the National Guard. Residents and law enforcement offices from throughout the country posted more than 150 reflections on Officer Dan Memorial Page, expressing condolences for his family. Sharon Forrest of Locust Grove shared an interaction that her family had with Maddox, calling him an amazing young man. Forrest wrote that Maddox was particularly comforting to her son and daughter at the time of their father's death. What a stand-up young man you were, and I will never forget you, she wrote. My thoughts and prayers are with your wife, kids, and family. Patrolman Michael Watkins with the Thompsonton Police Department also shared his condolences. I grew up in Henry County, and it's a different feeling of grief when something like this happens this close to home, he wrote. 
My condolences to police officer Chase Maddox's family. A crowd from across Metro Atlanta joined together outside the Locust Grove Police Department for a candlelight vigil in memory of Maddox. Locust Grove Police Chief Jesse Patton read a statement from his family, as Atlanta 5 reported. He died doing what he loved, the statement read. Please continue to pray for our family. Remnants of the memorial, flowers and balloons, are left with Maddox's patrol car parked outside the Locust Grove Municipal Complex. On Main Street and across town, businesses and homes installed blue lights in show of support and remembrance. Groups banded together to raise money for the Maddox family. They're just gestures, compassionate ones, but they all are a community that can do it as it grieves and waits for answers. And this is from 11alive.com. Alex Maddox posted this statement two days after her husband was laid to rest. There are no words I could possibly find to express my gratitude for the outpouring of love and support for our family. It has been our rock through our worst nightmare. Hearing everyone's kind words and stories about our chase has been a guiding light. As we took yesterday to honor my handsome, heroic, and amazing husband, Seeing everyone lined up for miles upon miles brought a sense of comfort I have not been able to find since 2009. To my LGPD and the worldwide expended Leo family, your constant presence, reminders and promises that Chase will never be forgotten has eased my heart more than I can put into words. As I tried to take in every aspect of his memorial service yesterday, I could not have imagined a more grand, a more perfect way to honor our officer. For that and everything else, I will be forever grateful. The love of my life, my husband, and my hero is Officer Chase Lee Maddox, Shield 216. And because he is mine, I will walk a line. Today's show is dedicated to Officer Maddox. And it's dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. It's also dedicated to all the brave men and women who serve in our military from the birth of our nation through today and into the future. May God bless each and every one of them. We dedicate to them this song, Amazing Grace. God bless them all. Yeah. 
Listening to Southern Sense here live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, High Plains, Daily News. Also up on iTunes, iTunes, YouTube, Facebook, Stitcher, Spreaker. Boy, am I messing up today, big time. Oh, Curtis, come help me out here. <laughs> oh, man. Curtis, unmute yourself. It looks like I'm here alone. Curtis, can you unmute yourself? And it looks like I am. Can you hear me back? Well, we're, I got you now. <laughs> All right. Oh, man. Jeez. What else can go wrong today? All right. Well, we're waiting. In a few seconds, we should have our guest, uh, Edwin Duterte, um, calling in. He's running for a Congress out of District 43 in California. That's Maxine Waters' seat. Uh, so he should be calling in any second. And I'm going to look forward to uh, speaking with him because uh, I was looking at some of the uh, reports coming out of California. And it looks like he may have the best chance to defeat Maxine Waters. What a blessing that would be. Definitely. She needs to go. <laughs> a lot of them need to go. Yes, Max. Yeah, she definitely needs you know to what? go. There's a lot that needs to do. For the first time, go ahead. Uh, I think it was done on one of the Sunday shows. I I got to see your your senator Lindsey um, Graham with other senators, and the guy really is short. He looked like uh, Danny DeVito short. <laughs> I didn't realize. I told he was you he's short. short. You yeah, didn't believe didn't me. You did not want to believe me. <laughs> I've never seen him, you know, with other guys. I guess they always had him propped up. Standing <laughs> on a box. Well, do you remember yeah. when they were doing the debate? They had him on a box. If you remember, they were doing the presidential debates. They had him standing up on top of a box. So he came up to almost equal height with everyone else. <laughs> so, yes. Wow. And you yeah, know how short I am. I'm only 5'3". So when I when I say I actually went toe to toe, nose to nose with him, I physically was because he's the same height he as I am. He was on a little box. Oh, <laughs> little man, little box. <laughs> we got a new nickname for Lindsey Graham: Little Man, Little Box. <laughs> you remember that song? Um, short people got no reason to live. I always I thought that yeah, was Randy Newman. That song. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Randy Newman. That was uh, that was from the album uh, Pictures in a Picture Gallery. I believe was the name of that album that song came out. Because my older brother, being a little bit taller than I am, somewhat used to sing that to me all the time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, family. Day. You couldn't play that today. <laughs> it, it hurts people's feelings. Um, 
Well, you know, I got to tell you, because they're talking about it. Kel and Gary are talking about it, and you are in the uh, chat room, about this horrible shooting out in uh, Texas. And it looks like it's two students uh, that are responsible. They're also, before I came on air, I heard something about there may be others involved. Um, this is this is really disturbing because it's not just shooting. They found explosive devices, too, on campus and off campus. So this is some sort of a coordinated attack, I think. Yeah, and you know we're going to get the blame of law-abiding um, gun owners. We're going to get the blame. Yeah. The NRA. Oh, definitely. They're going after the NRA. Yeah, they're they're going to do that. So we're just waiting for our guests. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens, what comes up with the investigation. um, But you were just, I was going to mention, you were just doing a um, uh, book signing, right? Oh, yeah. I did a book signing up in... um, Gainesville, Georgia, last night. It's ironic because the week before, I was doing a book signing in Gainesville, Florida. So I had never been in two states a week apart doing the same thing in a city with the same name. (laughs) I've written them a lot about the Georgia-Florida thing, you know, Gators versus the Bulldogs. They love that. Well, you got to come here to South Carolina when you get between uh, the Gamecock fans and the uh, Clemson fans. Oh, man. Talk about a brawl. <laughs> wow. Well, you know, um, Florida had a little rivalry there when um, their coach, Steve Spurrier, um, went to um, South Carolina. So we got a little history there, Florida and South Carolina. Yep. Absolutely. But I was in uh, I was in Dallas, Texas, about a month ago, and uh, I think this shooting took place outside of Houston. I'm not sure. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is out, just outside of Houston, um, and reports are still coming in on it. They still got the place on lockdown. Uh, last I heard, there were eight confirmed dead. Possibly the next uh, two more will will not survive. It looks like. Uh, so it's, it, it is very sad. You know, one thing I, I got to mention, because, you know, everyone's talking about all of a sudden we have all these school shootings. Well, I think there's two things to to remember. Number one, a lot of these, because of the, the technology we had in the past compared to what we have today, where it's 24-7 instant news within, you know, seconds of something occurring, uh, you didn't have that in the past. Everything came on at 5 o'clock or 9 o'clock at night or 11 o'clock at night. You had limited news broadcasts, and most of it was just local news. It wasn't nationwide, unless you were someone like Walter Cronkite. So these were occurring, but they were just not being reported as they are as widely today. And also, because they are being reported so widely, I think it's also encouraging others that are a little bit off of their Fruit Loops here uh, for mimicking them, for aping them. So if anything, I should say we should start to tamp down the reports, not make it 24-7 nonstop. You know, break to another story, folks. There's other things going on in the world. You know, well, you know it's I think all they, about they encourage people to do this. Well, the networks, it's, for them, it's all about, you know, riding uh, an issue as long as it's bringing in the ratings, you know, and money. Um 
look at Stormy Daniels. I heard that her lawyer had, had been on in three weeks of over 170 times throughout the um, liberal media. Um, so, you know, they'll milk it for all it's worth. And like you say, you got imitators out there and wannabes, you know, and they want to do, do one better, you know. If one guy kills 20, they want to kill 40. So they can be all over the news and social media. Yeah, they're, they're five minutes of fame. But you know that the Stormy Daniels attorney, that kind of like backfired him because his background is emerging like crazy. You know, there's one story that came out in the yesterday's news that this barista company he owned, um, this coffee company, uh, not only did it renege on paying its bills, but it had a um, manager for one of its stores that had worked with them for five, four years. Uh, she was outstanding, uh, commendated for being the top employee for so long, very loyal. Uh, and then she tells him that, hey, listen, I'm pregnant, and she gets fired. And now, now you're, 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 you're proposing to be someone who supports the Me Too movement, and yet when this woman who's never had a mark against her, who was one of your top employees, very loyal, she tells you, well, yeah, by the way, I'm pregnant. You fire her? Well, first of all, I think that's against the federal law and state law. And now you here you're, you're representing Stormy Daniels, supporting the women's feminist movement, and you fire a pregnant woman. Give me a break. Hey, what do laws matter to those on the left? They break them left and right. Well, it's the hypocrisy. It's the hypocrisy of the whole thing. And I don't know what happened to our guest because he emailed me just a short while ago that he was excited about being on the show, and I don't know what happened to him. He's now MIA. So I don't know what's going on here. Well, send me his number. I'll try to contact him. Well, I don't have a phone number for him. I just have an email for him. I wish I had a phone number. So let me see if I can get one from him. So I'm just going to go through the email right now, looking at it to see if I did have it. And no, I don't. And I'm just going to send him a message. Um, oh, well, there's a lot to talk about anyway. You know, we got this, um, we have this North Korea um, little um, powwow that may be canceled because um, we have a war games over there and uh, little rocket man, I don't think he, he likes that. But the way the media on the left is jumping all over this, you know, you would believe that they're, they are rooting for little rocket man instead of you know, our own president. So I well, don't know. Sure. I if, if, they can, if, if they can tank the talks, if they can actually do something to interfere with them and cause them to fail, well, guess what? Donald Trump is going to look like he's got egg on his face and he's not going to get that Nobel Prize, wow. you know, Nobel Peace Prize. That's, what, that's their point. They want to make him look bad, so they're posting these, these news items that may be fictitious as far as we know because they're not coming from Kim Jong-un himself. They're coming no. Kim Jong-il, right? That's the son. I keep on forgetting which one, Un or Il, <laughs> whatever. Um, well, the one in power now is um, Kim Jong-un. Mm, all right. I had it right the first time then. Um, yeah. But if, if they can well, tank it and make Trump have... look bad, 
Well, the media is going to have egg on their face when we all see Trump and Lil Rocket Man smoking peace pipes in another month. <laughs> we hope so. We hope so. And I'm still waiting for our guest to contact me and tell me what the heck is going on here. Because like I said, just before we went on air, he sent me an email uh, saying that he was excited. So we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe there's a problem with the phones out there. But uh, But there is a lot to talk about. Oh, go ahead. I was going to ask you what do you think about this Inspector General report that's going to be coming out sometime this month. It looks like uh, oh, those man. that are robbing us are trying to get get out ahead of the report coming out to cover their um, cells. I, I did not read the, I believe it was New York Times article. Honestly, I have not read that article. Right. I just heard some commentators talking about it. It looks like it may also backfire on the media because uh, it looks like whatever is in that report, McCabe will have criminal charges up against him uh, involved in that too. And all on the left side. And the media was trying to put it out there. So by the time the charges did come through, it's going to be, oh, that's old news. You know, forget about it. Let's move on to oh, the next yeah. story. But those of us that have the alternative media are going to have to stay on top of it, honestly. So as soon as that report comes out, we're going to have to stay on top of it and harp it and pass it around and get fellow other conservative uh, alternative media out there to talk about it and force it back into the front page of the news. Well, That's my here's opinion. The kicker. Here's the kicker, though. From my understanding, this report goes straight to the FBI and the Justice Department, and they get to decide what is released. So what's to stop them from claiming everything is national security again? It's just it's like a never-ending cycle here, you know? I mean, these are the people that, that's going to be harmed the most by this report, but they get to um, redact certain things and and withhold the rest from the public. And it just doesn't seem fair, you know. It doesn't sound American. Also, will also backfire them, uh, because every time the FBI redacted something, and then when they removed the redaction, they ended up with egg on their face again. Uh, they ended up finding out that, you know, the things they claimed were sensitive actually, in truth, were not. They were just covering their own assets, to be polite about yeah, that. If they try that again, you know that there will be people like you and me and others out here that are going to you know, go over that and start pulling it apart. You get people from WikiLeaks looking at it. You'll have a lot of people looking at it. InfoWars will be looking at it. And the FBI is going to have to now at this point take action. They've got to clean house. And unless you know, Trump forces at hand, I, I don't see it happening soon, but I think in the end it all will out. You know, Julia Assange, he's been pretty quiet here lately. I'm just curious. I mean, this guy was putting out information pretty pretty steadily over the years, and all of a sudden he's kind of quiet. But um, I'm hopeful that in the near future he'll get some more important information out there in the public arena so we can see some of the other things, the deep state, has been up to. Well, we'll we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Just bear with me. I had pulled some stuff off the computer just before 
coming on air, some things I had popped out that I thought were interesting. And uh, there is right now in Congress, and guys, get a hold of your senators. Um, there's a bill out there, S-2607, that would force every state to adopt gun confiscation members uh, measures, teeth and straight, gun confiscation members. Good Lord, why can't I talk today? Uh, but the bill is... It's Friday. The Senate bill... Yeah, it is. Um, Flyley. Um, the bill is S-2607 and would force every state to adopt gun confiscation measures. Now, this is scary because it doesn't give you um, the the ability to face your accuser. So basically, this bill is saying that if a family member or a neighbor or someone else, you know, is angry with you, an angry ex-spouse, uh, they can contact the authorities, and a judge will then write up an order to remove your guns. You don't have your day in court. You have no way to seek, you know, justice. So any person with a firearm can have someone turn around and make a complaint, and the next thing you know, an order is written to have your guns taken away. This is a very, very scary bill, and it's based upon. Uh, some of these states, I think Massachusetts has done it. I think California has it. Gun confiscation, Seattle, uh, Washington State has it. And they're claiming that it works in these states. Well, right now, well, I don't know um, if anyone has, has challenged this in these states and exactly how those laws are written. But the one they have broadly written through the Senate here is really, really scary. So uh, check it out. It's up on Gun Owners of America, this uh Senate Bill 2607. Is that not frightening? Very frightening. Um, do they say who sponsored this bill? Who's behind it? Oh. Let's take a look at this. Um, well, you know, Chuck Chucky is behind it, Chuck Schumer, or as you oh. know, as I say, Schmuck Schumer. Um, of course, I'm probably going to get no <laughs> Southern Poverty Law. I, I got a new name. And I got a new name for him. Chuck with no humor. <laughs> Believe it or not, uh, your buddy Marco Rubio is behind this. It's under Rubio and Nelson. Are you kidding so me? So the police are angry. Yeah, Marco Rubio. I'm not surprised. And uh, really. they're calling this a Star Chamber of Proceedings, uh, in which an a- the police or an angry ex could convene an Orwellian secret hearing to strip you of your constitutional rights without giving you a chance to be heard. In what is otherwise known as an ex parte hearing, the secret hearing will find you guilty, not by a standard of beyond a reasonable doubt, or not because there was probable cause to believe you had committed a crime, or not even because there was a probable cause to believe you would commit a crime. Rather, you would be stripped of your gun rights based on subjective determination that you presented, quote, a significant danger, unquote, to someone including yourself. And incredibly, the bill strips state courts of all discretion about whether or not they can decline to take away your rights. And we have experienced some of these star-chambered procedures in which only the accuser is in the room. In those cases, the judge almost always issues the order. In a study of gun confiscation orders in Seattle, the court granted 28 of 29 applications. 
And Massachusetts legislators stated, with respect to a much more limited domestic violence ex parte orders, where only the accuser is represented, that the courts don't ask many questions. The first time, the first time a gun owner learns about the proceedings is when a police SWAT team that normally serves high-risk arrest warrants for violent criminals arrives at his door to immediately see his previously lawfully owned firearms. After a fixed number of days, S-2607 generously allowed you to spend $10,000 and up for attorneys and expert witnesses in an effort to convince a court that it made a mistake. Few gun owners have the resources to mount such a challenge, and few courts are willing to reverse themselves on these types of issues. Man, this is scary. It looks like possibly we may have our guest finally in on the line. Let's bring this caller in. And you're here on Southern Sense, and I'm your host, Annie Ubelis, the radio chick. Who am I speaking to? So this is Edwin Duterte. Hi, Edwin. You were missing Hi, an action. We thought you, we would give up on you. Oh, you know, I thought I was supposed to call in at 12, so I apologize that, uh, that, I, that, that I missed up the time. Oh, you're out there in California, and you are Don Quixote going up against the windmills. You're trying to take down Maxine Waters. God bless you for that. Oh, thank you, thank you. You know, there is a path to win, uh, and you know, and I, I, I when I design, designed the plan, the campaign to uh, to go against Maxine, I saw an opening, and uh, a lot of a lot of the uh, Republicans and 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 Democrats, for that matter, thought that this. Uh, you know this task was uh, too impossible, uh, but we are executing our plan, and we are, um, you know, we're right in the fight. So it's 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 a lot of fun, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> Anything to go up against and annoy Maxine Waters that would be definitely fun for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you are, have an interesting background uh, that you happen to be the uh, son of an immigrant uh, parent. And your parents came in lawfully. I was reading your bio up on your website, and it is absolutely fascinating. And here you are in a sanctuary state and fighting the establishment over there. Tell us about your background. (laughs) Well, my my background is, you know, getting uh, to my parents. My parents came here uh, legally through legal methods. They they, uh, grew up in the Philippines. They were born and raised in the Philippines. And in 1967, my father was allowed to uh, to immigrate or, uh, you know, uh, had the permission to immigrate to uh, to the Philippines or uh, from the Philippines to the United States. And he came to America, uh, you know, while his mother was on her deathbed. And, you know, unfortunately, she passed away uh, while he was in uh, in trans- uh, transport to uh, to America. But he had when he landed to America, he had sixty seven dollars in his pocket, a new suit from Hong Kong and a desire to succeed uh, in the United States and, and live the American dream. Uh, you know, the great thing is he's, he, he, within two weeks of living uh, in America, he found a job, and uh, within two months he found an apartment uh, that, he, uh, you know, that, that he could raise um, you know, his kids in and became a super uh, successful uh, real estate uh, professional. And I followed in his footsteps and um, and became a, a real estate professional. And since then, uh, you know, things have been been very positive. Um, you know, even in the last 
you know, in 2008, with a solid career in real estate, I found myself uh, unemployed because of the Great Recession, and I, I pretty much, you know, uh, switched from real estate to helping out the community. And because of the Great Recession, help uh, that lost a lot of jobs. Uh, I went around the country to help people find jobs, and I did, uh, you know, uh, mixers and connected the unemployed to the uh, to hiring professionals and hiring companies and it was a great run i went i went from uh doing small events in los angeles uh to events in vegas uh la uh, san francisco miami and then the national association of broadcasters um you know they they saw what i was doing and asked if i can do their career day and then i started doing job events for five to ten thousand people at a time so it was it was was pretty fun And, and here i am now I want to slay the dragon and take Maxine down and help out our community find jobs, and not only jobs, but better-paying jobs. And that's where that's where I am now. Well, you've got you've got two other opponents going into the primary, and I think the primary is what next week. Well, the primary is, is actually going on right now. The um, uh, the early voting, the absentee voting, has uh, started last Monday, and it goes on until uh, June fifth. And uh, June fifth is the actual polling date. Um, and we'll know uh, probably about um, 10, 11 o'clock uh, mi- uh, to midnight on June 5th, uh, who, who the actual people running in the general. And I hope, I hope uh, we could have two uh, strong, responsible Republicans, and it would be awesome if we could primary out Maxine Waters on June 5th. <laughs> oh, man, anyone would be better than Maxine Waters, even a pet rock. <laughs> Right, 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 right. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, uh, you had a, up on your webpage, Save California, and you introduced yourself, and you said, "I am running for Congress in the 43rd district against Mad Maxine Waters." I love that. A crooked career politician, she has destroyed the 43rd with failed policies and has many terrible scandals. The race is very important for the future of the community. The people of the 43rd have suffered for too long. We need to take a stand against failed politicians and stand up for the people of the district. Enough is enough. I'm asking for your support, outreach, and more importantly, your vote. We will save California quickly by creating STEAM education, preparing our students for the jobs of the future, and completely destroying the theft and corruption embedded deep within the establishment. Holy moly. A lot of the stuff I noticed on your webpage was tying in jobs with education. And this right. is something I've had with my own school district and the past um, school superintendent. I, I approached her and I said, why don't we have more public-private uh, inter- intervention? You know, Ask the businesses, what skills do you need to fill the jobs? And then see if you can match the students to those jobs and do something like an apprenticeship so that once they right. graduate, they have a job to go into. Right, right. And you get it. You get it. Uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of uh, people in the education and our elected officials, they are government officials, and they think that government knows best. You know, we, you and I both know that government doesn't know best. The private sector it causes the, the innovation. The, the uh, private sector creates the jobs, you know, for that innovation. And I agree with you 100% that, um, that we need more stronger bond with the private community and the private sector knows what, what they need. So why can't we work with them to, uh, you know, to make things happen? So I, I'm in full agreement sure. with you. We, we, we need, 
you know, and if you look at my district, my district, uh, you know, for those of you who don't know, my district, uh, you know, is in the South Bay of Los Angeles. And in the South Bay of Los Angeles, um, we are known as the, the, the new Silicon Beach area where there's a lot of technology, a lot of innovation. And of those, you know, in those, uh, in those jobs, they often have six-figure jobs. And in our community, the 43rd district, um, you know, we, are, we have 17 to 18% poverty rate. And that's 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 sickening, uh, considering we have SpaceX who has six-figure jobs. We have Google that has six-figure jobs. So if we ask SpaceX and Google uh, to help us out and help develop skills within the community, you know, I don't see why we can't have a hundred thousand scientists, a hundred thousand astronauts, and a hundred thousand um, uh, engineers in the district. So we we need everything needs to start from education, and we need to have the building blocks to uh, re re uh, engineer our uh, our district. Evelyn. I, yeah. I know there... Curtis has a question, but I just want I just Curtis, just for a second, I wanted to follow up on the education bit. Uh because when you get to Congress, I'm not saying if, I'm saying when you get to Congress, yeah. would you work hard then to take funding away from the the federal school uh programs and bring it back down to the state and community level? Well yes, you know, we we have fifty states um and at 50, the 50 states have different needs. California has different needs in Iowa. Iowa has different needs in Florida. And we, we should look at every state developing their education based on what is needed in the workforce in that particular state. So I would uh, introduce a lot of uh, ideas to bring back education into the state. Uh, in addition to that, I would create more uh, incentives to the to the private sector for the investment into our educational system because with with, with that uh, you know a lot more innovation can happen a lot more uh, cooperation and a lot more excitement can happen you know once you give some excitement once you get some innovation and once you get some motivation to the to the youth to the to the uh, young adults as well as to the experienced uh, professional a whole lot of things can happen and you know and a good example of that is what happened in the, in uh, northern california especially with east palo alto i would love to uh do stuff uh to improve our our district and our country for that matter go ahead hey, curtis are there any counties in your district that are fighting back the sanctuary madness yeah, well, you know, there there is a movement, uh, you know, with with the various cities uh, in in our in La, in Southern California in particular, um, you know, we've we've had uh, you know the cities like Los Alamitos, we've had uh, you know some some cities uh, you know in Orange County, and uh, in fact, I think Santa Clarita, um, you know, they're they're going strong against um, against uh, the sanctuary cities. So there is a movement, and we are seeing a lot of. Um, a lot of law and order, you know, bring back law and order into, um, you know, into our state. And that's why it's really important to understand there's a lot of things that need improvement in our state. And if we don't band together, we could lose it. So, you know, so it, it goes back to we need to save California. All right. We got a Skype caller in on the line. Let me bring the person in live. Uh, caller, you're on the air live with Southern Sense. I'm your hostess, Annie, along with my co-host, Curtis, and our guest is Edwin Duterte. Uh, who am I speaking to? Hi, am I on the air? Yes, you are. Hello. Hi, I'm uh, Jeffrey from yes, Topeka, you're... Kansas, and I just tell you guys, I am absolutely fed up with everything 
those libtard Obunga policies, <laughs> they sent this country into the shitter, let me tell you. Okay, I give my wife one Alaskan pipeline, and everyone's up in arms about it. As far as I'm concerned, Hillary killed Jesus, all right? I am not going to sit here and take it, okay? I'm, I'm done. Let me tell you something. I am ready. I'm putting the chaw in. I'm getting the guns out, and we are going to war with the gays and the blacks and the Mexicans. We are going to war. Hey. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something here. <laughs> All right, all right. Boy, love you know passion. you're doing something right, Edwin, when, when you get trolled. <laughs> yeah, love the passion, love the passion. You, you know, he's, you know, he's absolutely right. If we don't, uh, if if we don't uh, look at look at our government and say what do we need to do and improve, and we have to do it smart. We we have to, uh, you know, raise awareness of here are the ways to improve our our country. Here's our way to, to improve our district, and let's let's go with that. Uh, so I, I love his passion, and, uh, you know, God bless him. <laughs> well, like I said, you know you're doing something right when you get trolled. You know, uh, your website is great, uh, and there's a link to it up on our show page, so people can just uh, click on – I have your Facebook page there, and it'll also take you to your, your regular page. Uh, so people can check, out, check it out, friend you, and make a donation to your campaign. You know um, – some of the polls I was looking at had you very close, running very close with Maxine Waters. Is she doing anything to, you know, to go after you? Is she even campaigning, or what is she doing? Yeah, well, she has her operatives uh, to to uh, to hit me. Uh, you know, back back in I announced that I'm ru- I was running in August, and uh, in October, November, uh, her and her goons uh, from uh, from Think Progress which is a publication, online publication, uh, headed by Podesta. They try to say that I'm a racist, even though there is photos of me with the Crips, with the Bloods, with lowriders, uh, talking in the, in the community with minorities, because our district comprises of 80% minority. And they are saying that I'm a, a racist, and that's all they could do. So, so they, they did a hit piece in November. Uh, so that's what I've been battling, uh, you know, that's all they. That's all they can say about me. In fact, uh, two weeks ago, I was um, interviewed by NPR as well as Yahoo News, and all they wanted to talk about is, uh, you know, is racism. And I, I kept telling them, look, there's one way to fight racism, and that's to uh, bring our community up. And they didn't want to talk about that. They didn't want to talk about the economic uh, ideas I have. They didn't talk about uh, the. Uh, the ways we could bring up education, uh, how we can uh, bring up STEAM. All they wanted to talk about is is racism. And up until now, they have not published any of those uh, reports. So what that's telling me is, you know, uh, Maxine Waters and, and her goons are trying to say that if you have an R behind your name, if you're a conservative, uh, you must be racist, and that's completely false. So the fake news is real. Well, it's it's funny. Here you are a minority yourself, right? Yes. So you yes. would think you would think they would not play the race card, but they have, which is I, have. I find absolutely amazing. But then again, Maxine Waters' answer to anyone who challenges her, "Oh, you're a racist." Yeah, yeah. And and if you look at the district, you know we have twenty two percent, you know, African American. We have forty seven percent Hispanic. Um, and let me put an asterisk on that uh, that forty seven percent. And then twelve percent uh, Asian, so it's very, it's a very high minority uh, district. 
in in terms of the forty seven percent a uh forty seven percent Hispanic of that because Filipinos were uh were conquered by the Spaniards uh and took a lot of the uh Spanish last names Filipinos uh, are grouped into that forty seven percent and I would say you know and this is a this is a broad estimate but i I would say out of that forty seven percent uh hispanic number uh, about twenty five percent of that number are Filipinos so Filipinos um you know even though they typically registered Democrat. They, I've been talking to the Filipinos. I've been talking to the Hispanics, Asians, and even the, the blacks and the Crips and Bloods, and I'm trying to you know, host a truth, and, and we can talk about that as well uh, with the, between the Crips and the blacks. But I've been talking to the community, and they believe that it's time for Maxine to go because her ideas are stale. Her 1938 uh, ideas are old and tired and don't work in, in 2018. And a lot of uh, people in this district are going to vote for me, and I'm going to get a lot of crossover vote because they lost faith in Maxine Waters. Oh, man. <laughs> I want to yeah. see you in Congress. I really do. I would um, love to see you in Congress, plan- too, because we're going to shake a lot of things up. <laughs> now, you, you talk about taxes on your website, uh, but you really don't say uh, what you – believe uh, you should be doing about lowering the tax rates. Are you for something like the fair tax, or are you just looking to lower rates across the board? Yeah, well, I, I, I look at the fair tax, and I, you know, I've, I've been looking at the fair tax geez, uh, you know, for, for several years now, and I really, uh, there's a lot of things in the fair tax that I really like. Uh, however, getting, getting, you know, uh, passing the Fair Tax Act um, is, is going to be very difficult. I would like to see, number one, is we don't really have a tax, uh, tax raising problem. We have a spending problem. You know, every time we raise taxes and they should be uh, going to certain line items, uh, the politicians somehow divert, uh, divert whatever they're trying to do and raise expenses. So we need to number one look at expenses and make sure expenses are in line with with with, uh, with what we raise, and we have to understand that the spending that's being done is going into effective and uh, and innovation uh, effective and innovative uh, uh, programs that do what they're actually going to do. A lot of times these these programs are you know ninety percent of their money is you know, wastefully spent. So we need to, we need to curb that. So once we get the, once we balance the budget and once we have a, a stronger make sense budget, you know, then, then we should look at the taxes and if, if it makes sense and, and we all know it, it will make sense to lower the taxes, uh, you know, after we spend, after we look at the budgets, you know, then we can lower the taxes and really make sense of where our money should go. And while we uh, lower the taxes, what that's going to do is that's going to raise economic, um, you know, opportunities because as business owners, as uh, you know, the private sector has more money in their pockets, they could do a lot uh, with that and stimulate the the economy. So, yeah, so we we you know, so there's a lot of things to be done, and you know, to talk about taxes within a two two minute period, it's almost impossible. But um, you know, but but to assure you, we need to first look at the budgets. And make sure that uh, the the spending is under control because you know with uh, you know with 20 plus trillion in um, you know in uh, you know in, in you know uh, in, in wasteful spending uh, that has to stop and we have to stop the bleeding. Now we've only got a few minutes left, and I'm sorry that we didn't have more time with you. Uh, but just before you called in, we were discussing this Senate bill that's up there, uh, 
Senate Bill 2607, which is a gun confiscation uh, bill, because it's requiring um, all the states to have some form of legislation in place uh, to, um, how, how do they say this? Uh, it basically is an ex-wife or someone else can go to court and say that you're a danger. It, they don't have to prove that you've committed a crime. They don't have to prove that you intend to commit a crime. They don't have to prove that you are a danger to yourself or anyone else. Just make an accusation. And then a judge writes right. up an order, and just the accuser alone, you're, you have no way to defend yourself or even knowing this proceeding is going on against you. And then next thing you know, you've got a SWAT team at your front door breaking it down and taking your guns. And God forbid you even resist because you have no idea what's going on. And then you right. have to spend all this money to try to prove that you're innocent and it was just a malicious claim against you. So this is, especially today after we've had another school shooting, this is a really, really scary and slippery slope here. Right, right, right. Well, we have to understand. One of the problems that I have with, with the media as well as uh, these elected officials, uh, whether they're in Washington or in the state capitol, we have – we keep missing the mark of what the problem is. You know, a lot of a lot of the people, especially on the left, are saying the problem is with guns. I don't believe the problem is with the guns. We have a problem of anger management, and that's the root of the problem because I don't know when the last time you touch a piece of metal or you touch a piece of plastic and that triggers you so bad where you wanted to kill somebody. The problem that we need to, to do is look at anger management and, and how we can uh, identify that and, and fix that problem. So, uh, you know, for, for, for us to have legislation to weaken the Second Amendment is, is clearly wrong. Uh, the, you know, the, the left, the Marxism that's going on where they want to grab the guns and they want to blame everything on the gun. They want to blame guns on, on speeding. They want to blame the guns on, uh, you know, on, on whatever, whatever stupid reason they, they can. And that needs to stop. We need to look at the core focus issue. And we're just not doing that. We're, we're just missing the mark. And, and that's, that's a shame. And, and that makes me very, very, very sad. All right. Well, I'm going to go over to a different subject now, uh, because you said you're trying to do a pact uh, truce between two different groups that are warring in uh, Los Angeles. And you hear all this about Black Lives Matter. And my mm -hmm. question is always, if they matter so much, why aren't you protesting Planned Parenthood that murders right. innocent babies every year, every day, thousands of babies? And the vast majority, 75 percent, are black. So yeah. lives matter so much why aren't you out there stopping this and then yeah, tell us yeah, about yeah. The, the truce you're trying to uh, to to uh, put together yeah well i'm i'm 100 uh you know behind you that uh you know we have to look at uh the murder of the unborn and we have to protect the unborn you know that's why i am pro-life and i i will stand by uh stand by uh the uh the you know the unborn uh, child as, as much as possible in terms of what we're trying to do in the neighborhood there. In, in one of the one of the areas in the district, it's known as uh, Death Alley. Uh, they have the highest murder uh, murder rate uh, per square foot in the uh, in the entire country, and that stems mainly because of uh, the Crips and the Bloods. The uh, you know the problem with a lot of these gangs uh, you know go back to you know uh, economics. How can they you know, pay for their families? How can they pay for the, uh, the roof over their heads? And how can they pay for uh, food and uh, get their kids educated? 
in these in these broken homes, you see a lot of uh, single parents, or if you see if you have uh, you know families that have two parents, they're they're both working, not just one job, but two jobs each. So they don't have time to uh, you know, to help out their families. So what I'm trying to do is I'm I'm going to the crypts, and you can see uh, you know the the videos I have on Periscope and on Facebook. I go into the hood, I go into the neighborhoods, and I talk to the crypts, and I talk to the bloods, and I say. Do you realize that we have SpaceX in our district? Do you realize we have Google in our in you know within within a bus right away? And in those jobs, they offer oftentimes six-figure jobs. So if we can create an avenue, an opportunity to, for for our people in our district to get educated and and have access to these six-figure jobs, will you stop the violence? And a lot of times they will say yes. I would say 95, 99% of the time they will say, "You find me the opportunity. You get me." You get me educated so then I can become a scientist, I can become an astronaut, I will stop gangs, I will stop, you know, the, the violence. And that's what we're seeing in the community. Where you know, that's uh that's not their number one issue is we need to stop the violence and we need better jobs so they can have so then they their kids can have better opportunity. All the other stuff you know, we we could take care of once you know once they can take care of their own homes. If they can't take care of their own homes, there's going to be problems through everybody's homes in the community. And and the truth we're trying to do is let's let's get the Crips, let's get the Bloods, and let's find them jobs and give them access to to companies like at Google, like at uh, Yahoo, and like at SpaceX. And uh, I, you know, if if you, I was at uh, what's known as ceasefire. So every Wednesday in uh, South Los Angeles, the Crips and the Bloods they get together and they find solutions on how to stop the violence. And um, you know, so I would I would love to give give out uh, more support to uh, ceasefire as well as community reflections. Uh, and they've been a they've been a big part of my campaign. And um, you know, it's funny when I talk about stuff like this uh, to the traditional establishment, uh, you know, of our party. You know, they say, "Oh, you know, give it, give it up. That's that's a wasted cause." But you know, we 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 can't turn our backs in our community. And I know that the Crips and the Bloods, uh, you know, in their you know in their their core values is conservative, and we got to bring that out because you know liberalism is at the forefront, but it's really not their base of their culture. You know, it's so funny. You would never think of a gang member as being someone that has conservative values, family values, because everything you see portrayed is usually the opposite. Yeah, yeah. Fam- look, look at you know when when you ask uh, you know uh, you know a, a black American, an African American, you know who they value the most, they will say mama. Mama is the most important thing to me. So that's that is um, you know that's a core family value is you respect your, your, your parents. And then if you ask them, you know, what do you think about pro-life? They go, you know, I, I got my, I got my girl pregnant and I'm keeping it, you know? So that's, that's a core uh, conservative value. So we have to point out and we have to really go out in the community and educate their lifestyle is really uh, a lifestyle of conservatism. Uh, It's all the liberal, all the surface liberalism, uh, is is just a front. When you look at how they live their life, how they save their money, how they use their money to, and they 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 stretch a dollar like like anybody can stretch a dollar, and they're very good at it. And we have to identify that, and we have to recognize that, and we have to appreciate that, and we have to also remind them that is a conservative value, and that's how we're going to win crossover. Well, votes. Edwin, I, I'm 
so much fun to have you on. I'm sorry we didn't have more time with you. Our next two guests are already up in the bullpen, so I want to bring them on. But I'm telling everyone to check out uh, your website, check out your campaign, and help you defeat Maxine Water and give her a permanent retirement. Thank you. Thank you. And I, I would love the opportunity to talk to you guys again. So, uh, you know, next time there's an opening, I would love to talk about, uh, you know, some of, the, uh, some of the ideas and other things that we're doing in the community that, that we just haven't published just because, uh, you know, we're trying to make a better L.A. All right. Well, thank you for all the hard work you do, and God bless. Take care. Thank you. Check God it bless out. you. Edwin Duterte. Whoops. I mean, just cut him off the last few seconds. But anyway, uh, we do have uh, next guest up and on the line. I do believe this is Karen, is it not? It is indeed. Hi, Karen. I'm going to let you speak with my co-host because he can't dial out to Dr. Nathanson. He'll be uh, joining us also. So I'm going to put myself on hold here and let Curtis and you converse, and I'll be right back. All right. Sounds good. Hi, Curtis. How you doing, Karen? Could you tell tell our listening audience a little about yourself? Sorry? Could you Sorry, tell you our were listening little... audience? Oh, tell, tell them a little bit about myself? Um, oh, yes. yes, I absolutely can. Um, I am a 47-year-old mother of three. I'm divorced. I uh, have a high school diploma and... Um, a kind of uh, I I was always in blue collar work, um, but about um, maybe ten years ago, I stumbled across the men's movement online and got very very interested in the issues uh, that uh, that they talk about and uh, trying to figure out um, that some of the root causes of why those issues are so difficult to address and it became a little bit Hello? of an obsession with me. Hello. Um, became a little bit of an obsession with me, and I I ended up uh, really just following through on it and talking about it, and uh, started a YouTube channel to discuss the issues, and it snowballed from there. And now I'm quite prominent in the movement. So, right, that you're advocating. Sorry. What is it about men's rights that you are advocating now? Oh, well, you know, th- there's a whole bunch of areas that need reform. Um, you know, divorce court is is one of them, uh, the, the sort of winner-takes-all system. And, you know, when we talk about winner-takes-all, um, we're, we're generally talking about custody because wherever the kids go, most of the assets and the income goes as well. Um, so what you have is a system that is designed, uh, it's based on, uh, in most states and in Canada, it's based on this presumption that the, pri- the best model for the children, um, the legislation is all gender neutral, but they, the policies surrounding all of this say that the best, the best interests of the children are served by having a sole custodial parent and then a visiting parent. Um, and uh, the, the later research, the research that's been done over the last 20 or 25 years has really shown that that's not the best model for kids, that they benefit from... Uh, lots of parenting time after divorce, particularly after divorce, um, with both parents. Um, but what you have is a system where, because that's the presumption and because mothers are sort of stereotypically seen as the, the primary or the better or the more reliable caregiver to small children, they end up with custody. And because uh, it causes all kinds of problems, and this is why it's so difficult to change it, I guess they're problems for people 
and particularly for children, but they're not problems for lawyers. Um, and they're not problems for child support agencies because the less parenting time you have, the more child support you, you are expected to pay. And also because uh, the more combative a divorce is, the more money lawyers make. And so essentially when you set it up so that you know one of the parties is going to essentially get everything that's, that's of any value within the marriage – primarily primarily the children and, and then all of the assets and income that goes along with that, um, you set up a really combative situation and it really causes a whole lot of strife and, and unpleasantness and a lot of unnecessary, it can actually take a situation that could have been amicable if, pe- if the two individuals were starting on an equal footing, could have been amicable, could have been fairly uh, inexpensive and easy to deal with and, you know, bing, bang, boom, you're done, and let's get on with our lives. Um, and, and it can turn it into a, a like hideous, hideous fight that lasts sometimes for years. So this is, this Karen, is really how the system is set up. Sorry? Karen, Karen, we've got uh, Dr. Yes? Paul Nathanson with us, uh, so let me bring him in on the air with, with our, and welcome aboard, Dr. Mm-hmm. Paul Nathanson. Welcome back, I should say. Um you also are along the same vein with uh, Karen Strahan in fighting Miss Andre. Uh, the feminists hate you and Karen. So, Dr. Paul, right. please introduce yourself. Uh, well, I mean, I have uh, my colleague and I, uh, uh, Catherine Young and I, um, have both been called rape apologists. And uh, the last time that happened, we were giving a talk at University of Toronto and there were demonstrators outside making a lot of noise. And um, I asked a few of them, well, what, not even identifying myself, I just said, well, this Paul Nathanson and Catherine Young, uh, who are they and what have you read by them? And uh, they had no idea. But we were rape apologists. We were, <laughs> were rape apologists because we were talking about that the advertised talk that evening was intersexual dialogue. That was it. That's all anybody knew. Yeah, well, I, you remember, four I books remember. out with your partner. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, Karen. I just want to mention he has four books out. Doctor, you have four books out on this subject with your partner: spreading misandry, legalizing misandry, uh, replacing misandry, and uh, sanctifying misandry. So go ahead, Karen. Um, yeah, no, I, I absolutely remember that uh, that protest. And what I found hilarious is somebody went around interviewing um, all of these protesters, and it seemed to me that the majority of the protesters actually believed that they were protesting a talk by Warren Farrell rather than by Paul Nathanson and Catherine Young, which is kind of funny. They, it's, it's almost like they, they're, just, they're just told, they're just pointed in a direction and somebody tells them, go and protest, and they don't even know why they're there. Um, I, I can't see anything. It makes me feel better, but, but it doesn't. <laughs> Well, I can't. I can see anything objectionable in saying that you know there is kind of a, particularly within the feminist movement, there's a streak of man-hating a mile wide, right down the center of it, and it, it kind of poisons the entire thing. And that feminist discourse has had an extremely um, large influence on our cultural narratives and therefore a lot of our cultural narratives have that sort of heavy streak of you know hatred and contempt for and fear of men you know sort of misandry and androphobia 
Um, so I like I don't I don't think that there's anything controversial in you know like we have we have pink parking spaces available to women despite the fact that they're safer than men walking to their cars um we have pink parking spaces in well-lit spots and escorts out because a man might do something bad to those women on their way to their car and and i'm thinking you know this this is this is an, an irrational fear of men and none of these people are saying women need pink parking spaces they need uh, they need all of these accommodations. They need women-only train cars on the London subway. Um, that None of them are saying this because there's a, a risk of these women being attacked by other women. No, it's, it's, it's definitely the idea that, okay, men are some kind of dangerous force in society, and we need to take all kinds of precautions against the horrible things that men do on a regular basis all the time, and uh, and yet when you actually say society has a deep-seated distrust, contempt of, and fear of men, people look at you like you've grown another head. I saw an interview with Gloria Steinem about five years ago, and somebody asked her the same question, you know, about man-hating feminists. And she says with a smile, who are these women? I've never met these women. What are you talking about? So... <laughs> I mean, it was just flat denial. And oh, then absolutely. There are, there are articles. I mean, there was an article in the Times, and there was another one in the Huffington Post by two women who um, wrote the article. By, by They began the article by saying that they didn't know if they could love their own sons because they would grow up to be men. Yes. Now, that's pretty oh, grotesque. Yeah, no. yeah, I took apart an article uh, by – it was. I think it was uh, – Four Cities, Five Women, or something like that. It was the blog. Um, something similar to that. And uh, they they essentially said that, you know, uh, it's, it's really difficult to decide whether you want to have a boy or a girl when you're pregnant, you know, which you would rather, because to have a girl is to bring this girl into a world where she will be victimized and oppressed and set upon it by, you know, in, at, from every direction and her life is going to be so difficult and it's going to be a life of eternal struggle and suffering and, and pain and woe and grief and, and pain and victimization and tears and the whole bit, right? So, she, so you don't want to have a girl because you don't want to bring a girl into that, but you know, if you, if you ha- you don't want to hope to have a boy because he's essentially just a little future rapist. And yeah, and I'm like, it, it, it's, how can how can you carry this worldview out into the world? How how can this make your life even remotely livable if this is what you well, really believe? Well, the interesting thing is that <clears throat> five years ago, much of this was considered correctly, I think, safely. Um, isolated on college campuses where there were all these radicals and you know but that wasn't the real world but now it's mainstream that's what well, really the reason troubles main, me most the reason it's mainstream is because it's all on co- college campuses and you know when you have any kind yes. of person who's highly passionate about their point of view what are they going to do they're they're going to look for ways to proselytize they're going to look for ways to change the opinion of the rest of the world to conform with their opinion if they feel very passionately about it so these kids become indoctrinated in this philosophy or this ideology or this insane set of 
of ideas and values within the universities, and and then what do they do? They go into well, journalism, there was they go into when, law, when people... they go into they go into politics, they go into education, they go into social work, they go into yes, you're right. But there was making. a time when people got out of university and grew up. Now they have ready-made communities that agree with what they're doing, and they simply go ahead. Uh, and and also there are political events that have, you know, created a kind of hysteria. One of them was the election of Trump. Um, and so they, they have rallying cries, and they have, um, you know, there was this mass murder in Toronto, and suddenly we were reading that, uh, and we have no idea what motivated this guy, but it was some kind of pathology in addition to um, other problems that many men do have. And that is to say they are simply forgotten. They're losers. Yeah. And you put yeah. that with a no. personal pathology and you get a mass murder. And, uh, you get, and fatherlessness right. is another problem. Well, and I think, I think too, uh, that well, the, the mainstream media is simplif- oversimplif- oversimplifying the issue with incels like Manassian. Right, Alec Manassian. It, it, you know, because these men aren't just, you know, sort of sex starved. It's, it's not that they're. I mean, maybe that's the primary thing that they are willing to talk about is that they, they can't find any woman who, who is, who wants to have sex with them. But they're also, they also tend to be uh, deprived of intimacy, to be deprived of human touch, and you know, what you can, you can actually cause and dwarfism, physical dwarfism in a child. Um, by depriving it of social interaction, by depriving it of physical contact and, and social interaction, you can cause a form of dwarfism. Um, you know, they, they just stop growing. So when you look at how social we are as a species and the fact that these men who call themselves incel are completely cut off from all forms of intimate human contact with women, so no affection, no approval, no hugs, no no uh, love, no sex, and that because they're cut off in that way, it's entirely likely that they're also cut off um, because o- other men will see them as untouchables and, and Well, weird, they do. Other men, right? so they're they, also hate, cut off they hate other men from, as well as women. Well, yeah, but maybe they hate other men because other men reject them as well, because women have rejected them, and so men will reject them as well. There's something wrong with that guy. Right, women won't have anything to do with that guy. I don't want anything to do with that guy either. So they're probably deprived of friends. They're probably deprived of any social contact and any social, deep social or meaningful social interactions whatsoever. And so, you know, like you're looking at a very, very complex set of problems that isn't just about sex. And yet, the mainstream media boils it down to all of this is just about men feeling entitled to women's bodies. And I'm thinking to myself. You know, if Elliot Roger actually felt entitled to women's bodies, he would have—he wouldn't have died a 22-year-old virgin. He'd have died a 22-year-old rapist. You know, I want to just add guys, something we, here. We got... uh, I want to add a little co- more complexity, and that is that there is also this atmosphere um, in which these uh, boys grow up these days. Um, it's an atmosphere of what I call identity harassment. Every time they walk out of the house, every time they listen to the news, every time they meet somebody, they are being shamed and blamed for every conceivable problem from the most serious to the most trivial, such as 
you know, not giving, not take, taking up too much room on a bus, um, as if women don't do that too with their purses. But there's this constant uh, humiliation of boys and their and the the corrosion of any possibility of forming a healthy identity as a man. I mean, this is yes. also part of the, this whole complex. It, it absolutely yeah, is. I've got an idea. It's, it's really I, I, when, I've when got you when you're Karen. Hmm? Karen, I got an idea. We're, we're going to have a radio show with just you and Paul, and we could call it the Kinky <laughs> Hour. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I keep you keep trying to jump in, and well, I, I just let you know that, that Paul and Paul and I have met, and and we admire each other very much, and we're very excited to talk to each other again. So, um, hey, I got a question. <laughs> Apologies. I got a question for both of y'all. Meanwhile, we got Curtis in the background. Go ahead, Curtis. Yeah, there, there used to be a saying, it's a man's world. Is is that still true today? Um, it, I don't think it was ever true. I don't think it was ever true. Some aspects of the world were the domain of men. Other aspects of the world were the domain of women. And, you know, there were forms of power and authority and um, and sort of self-determination with limited self-determination for both sexes um, that, that they had access to. I, I don't think, I think literally politics was a man's world. Business was a man's world. Professions were a man's world. Um, but there were other domains of society that were definitely um, dominated by women and where men deferred to women's judgment. Um, and there were you know, some going domains. All the way back to the, there were sorry? some domains, notably, uh, you know, the military one, where it was a man's world, if you want to call it that, but it was forced on them by law. Yes, and and you know, like you can go all the way back to the ancient Greeks and the the uh, the oikos, which is um, it's sort of like a combination word uh, meaning family corporation, I guess. So, like an extended family was sort of treated like a business, um, and all of the members of that family were sort of they were expected to act in the interests of the family business, the family as a business entity. And uh, men were men were outward facing and they dealt with the outside things and they went out and they earned money. And women were the ones who decided which families were welcome in the house, uh, which families would be hosted for dinner. They hired and fired all of the slaves and servants. Um, they were uh, responsible for uh, choosing what gifts to give guests of the household. Um, if they wanted another wing of the house built, they would just tell their husband or the men of the house, you know, I, I, we need another wing of the house, make it happen. And they were very much like the men didn't even know where the towels were kept. And uh, so women had and women could form coalitions of you know between uh, you know the the matriarch and her daughters and you know the daughters-in-law and and bring an enormous amount of power to bear on the men in the house um, to the point where you know they they were really running the show and they often took a heavy interest in the business affairs sort of a behind the curtain interest in in all. Let, of let me just add too. to that, Karen, that in some of these societies, including American society until very, very recently, and possibly even now, where elite women would also choose the, the mate for their children. Um, yes. 
And so, uh, you know, uh, both sons and daughters, both sons and daughters. And that, that needs to be said because we hear a lot about forced marriage and, and arranged marriage and how it victimizes women, how women don't have choice. Right. But the sons are forced into the arrangement as well by their parents. So. Karen. Hey, Karen. Um, yes. I see that you write a certain genre, erotica. My question is this. I, is, the art, is the art of seduction, is that dead? I mean, most men be afraid to do anything with women these days for being, you know, slapped with a harassment charge. Oh, yeah. No, you can't seduce a woman and stay on the right side of the law anymore. Um, you, or at least you can't seduce a woman the, the way she would want to be seduced without being in violation of the law. Well, now I got a question for Guarantee both you. of you, and I'm going to start with I'm going to start with Paul on this one uh, because right now everyone is playing identity politics, and you know we as Canadians and Americans we tend to root for the underdog, but that seems to be backfiring on us because now the underdogs are those social groups that are, start mass hysteria, uh, the, the nut jobs are in them. So what do we do about identity politics, Nathan? I mean, well, no, I mean, it is a it is a major problem. Uh, I think one, you know, democracy functions on the basis that people will vote in their self interest, but I think it it also functions and and relies heavily on the idea that in in some situations people will not put their own personal or collective interest before that of the whole country. Um, so I think that identity politics is really having a corrosive effect on democracy itself. Yeah, I think I think so too. It's you know, like I don't know what's to be done about it. Um what what you have is, you know, and one of the things too that you look at um with the difference between I guess the the American parlance would be liberals and conservatives, right? When you look at liberals, right, they they have um they they put a very high value on compassion and helping the poor and helping others, helping the marginalized and, and all of that and they they strongly value that as sort of a an ethic. Um, in their life, right? But when you actually look at who donates to charity, um, conservatives beat liberals hands down in terms of the portion of their disposable income they're willing to actually donate to social causes, to the poor, to the marginalized, to uh, to groups like the Red Cross um, and and other uh, sort of um, emergency uh, charities and stuff like that. So, you know, when it comes to putting your money where your mouth is, um, you know, conservatives may put compassion for marginalized groups a little lower on their priority list. But at the same time, they actually, the way they act in the world seems to be more in line with actually valuing that um, as opposed to just giving it lip service. And I think that, you know, honestly, the, the, what we're seeing now with the alt right is a is essentially uh you know uh certain uh people on the right uh who are white um saying well if identity politics is the game we're forced to play then so be it yeah then we're going to play it um and and you know like there's there's a, a ridiculous a ridiculous theory you know uh putting the cart before the horse theory in the media that you know groups like antifa and uh, and black lives matter and and all of these groups 
um, rose uh, to prominence as a, you know, as a response to white supremacy. But if you actually look at the beginnings of those groups, you know, anybody who was advocating white supremacy, anybody who was advocating a white ethno state uh, or anything like that, um, they were heavily marginalized. They were like laughed at. They were laughing stocks. The KKK barely exists, you know, and everybody just thinks they're a bunch of, of idiots. Um, and and people that you, you wouldn't, you know, if your cousin was a member, you wouldn't invite him to Thanksgiving. You know, you'd just say the invitation got lost in the mail. Sorry. Um, so essentially uh, what has happened is, you know, there was this sort of core vein of like really diehard uh, racists, white racists that, that still existed and they are just being given legitimacy by the fact that we have this massive identity politics game going on on the left where every single identity is being politicized and, and has its own lobby you know, effort and, and all of that. So I mean, the entire thing, like, I don't, I don't see anything good coming out of it. I think that, you know, we can, if, if we're going to balkanize um, the idea of rights and liberties and um, even social obligations, if we're going to balkanize them, let's balkanize them all the way down to the level of the individual and leave it at that. Well, you know, the men are taking a big hit from this feminist movement. It got to the point where it's so ridiculous that two professors were at a conference out in San Francisco recently, and I'm pretty sure you've seen this on the news. And he was in the elevator with a couple of other guys, and she was there, and she asked him, what floor? And this joke is as old as mankind, probably. And yeah. he said, woman's lingerie. She yeah. didn't say anything to him. She did not complain or reprimand him, but she walked off the elevator, promptly made a complaint against him. Now, this guy may lose his professorship. He may lose his job. They're both on the same side, but she blew this so out of proportion. Where do we stop it? Paul? If, if it was me in that elevator and she asked me what floor, I might have said, you know, uh, the 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 dildo section or something like that. Like, I... <laughs> like I'm much more risque than that. I'm much more, like I say, way more controversial things than actually. That lots did. of people, lots of people said risque things, even in my parents' generation. I mean, Mae West became famous for being risque, and people, uh, people enjoyed it. It was considered even sophisticated. Now, is that suddenly, a in your even a suggestion is enough to make people run out of theaters screaming. Well, it's. I think that's a that's a uh, consequence of women's sexual liberation. I think that because because sex as just as a as a thing is fraught with risk. It's uh, particularly for women, at least in terms of you know what went down for you know before the advent of the pill. Um, you know what what could happen. It was fraught with risk. It was fraught with uncertainty. It's a very, you know, as Camille Paglia says, you know, sex is a dark force. Um, it is. Uh, it stirs up all kinds of emotions, not all of them positive, and they're very, very strong emotions. Um, it can lead us astray. It can lead us into trouble. And uh, because of that, um, I don't think women, uh, because they had so much more to lose than men, I suppose, through the majority of our evolutionary history, um, you know, 
they have evolved a, a sort of a they're naturally a little um, less cavalier about sex, and yet they are have been immersed in a culture where women are expected to in, in you know sort of embrace their inner slut and um, and have all the fun they want. And you have this um, it's called a, a I think it was Pierce Harlan described it as a an asymmetry of regret, regret when it comes to uh, casual sex. So, you know, 80% of men who have had casual sex were happy with the results, and only 40% of women who have had casual sex describe the experience as positive. And the other 60% came away with negative feelings about it. And so I think that because there is this sort of hypersexual culture and women have complete freedom to make their own decisions sexually, um, but they're they're more, much more likely than men to be unhappy with well, the you results know, I, of those decisions. Well, you know, let me just add something here that um, even before the pill, especially before the pill, women were the gatekeepers of sex. They would they yes. had this presumptive no, and. Uh, Sometimes they decided to say yes anyway, but they still it was the, it was expected it was the default mechanism, and now yes. they lost that and they're on yep. were on an equal footing. But they now regret that now they realize well you know it's too dangerous or we don't know if we're going to be treated the way we want. So that this is a reaction against the sexual revolution. Yes, I think so. It's just, they well, did have that presumptive no, and the presumptive no was, it, it was, it was a, it's, you know how feminists will complain about how you know when they get hit on they they have to say well I have a boyfriend, right? Okay, and they they might lie about that in order to get the guy to leave them alone, leave them alone, and yes, that's true, right? Because some women do, you know, there's research saying some women do you know, sort of do the token resistance thing, say no when they really mean maybe or convince me or whatever, or keep trying. And so essentially what you have now is, you know, back in the 1940s and 50s, a woman, all she had to do was say, I'm not that kind of girl. And, uh, and that was that. Um, but there, there, there is no not that kind of girl anymore. Um, that's not, and, and to say that I'm not that kind of girl means you're setting yourself apart from the majority of girls. Whereas back in the 1940s, the majority of girls were not that kind of girl. So now men have to be my leader. I would say, uh, Dr. Paul, it would come down to moral values. It's all circles around moral values. Do unto others as you would have done to yourself. Exactly. Would it not? Exactly. Well, I think it comes it comes down to more than moral values. It, you know, it, it really comes down to one of the things that I lament, um, you know, because I know that there is, uh, you know, a strong inclination within the men's rights movement to liberate men the way women have been liberated. But then I look at, you know, the the outcome of women's liberation in terms of, even in terms of just, you know, a cost to the taxpayer and things like that. And I think there's absolutely, if we, if we liberated men from any obligation to anyone but themselves, um, you know, and even liberated them from the obligation to, to support themselves the way we have with women in, in many cases. Um, and, and, 
you know, essentially told them you don't have any responsibility to society. You don't have any responsibility to any other individual. It's just every man for himself. You're a free agent. Um, well, if that happens, the entire society is going to fall apart. Um, so, you know, I would, I would actually love to see, I would like to see the obligations of men uh, reduced for sure, because they actually have in some ways more obligations than they did back, you know, in the 1950s um, in terms of, you know, legally enforceable, go to jail if you can't do it, obligations like, you know, mandatory child support for illegitimate children and things like that. Um, you know, when you didn't even agree to become a parent. Um, but what you have, what what I would like to see is is actually a, a return to um, some form of responsibility on the part of women um, that makes them no longer free agents. And I think that that I that I think that that might help redress some of the imbalance here is if women actually felt a sense of obligation to their country, to their society, um, to uh, to their own self-sufficiency. Um, you know, if you go and, you know, blow a bunch of taxpayer money getting a PhD, you know, you should really do some to, you know, provide a return on the taxpayer's investment in you there. And, you know, as high as tuition is these days, it doesn't even remotely cover the cost of even the cheapest of degrees. Um, and then you get into something like being a doctor, and that's like two-thirds of a million dollars in some cases to train a doctor. And and then if you're just going to quit five years in because you decided you wanted to have kids instead, or as one woman I knew on the erotica writers forums, she wanted to write romance novels instead. She's like, oh, I've been practicing for a couple of years. I don't like it. And so I want to do this now. And I'm thinking to myself, how much taxpayer money did you waste to get a thing that you could put on your wall and say, yeah, I'm a medical doctor. I don't practice. I write books, you know, dirty books. Well, then uh, this, I this still is have where a moral hunch, value comes in, personal I, responsibility. Yeah, I still have yeah, a hunch that to, to, to create a real transformation, um, you've got to do more than um, create new bureaucracies or change. You have to really have a moral um, restart, a rebooting. Yes. Uh, how through. that can happen, I don't yeah. know. But, I mean, it take, it's about a world view. It's it's um it's more than a practical matter although it is a practical matter well you know when it comes to men's rights i mean we're we're at like we're probably like everybody said you know feminism started as a grassroots movement no it didn't it was populated mostly by middle and upper middle class right. women with like lots of money and lots of political connections and by you know the 1895 uh, the suffragettes in the UK knew they had a majority of support uh, of MPs in the parliament for women's suffrage. Um, the Labour Party and the, uh, I believe it was the Democratic Party, um, just uh, did not want to only give the vote to wealthy white women. They they were, you know, they knew that that would be political suicide given their voter base and, and all of that to double the number of conservative voters, um, double the number of wealthy white voters, basically. Um, but, uh, so you're, you're looking at, you know, the women's movement always had a ton of institutional support, uh, you know, like you literally had, um, in the, in the 1960s or seventies, you had universities actively recruiting feminists to create women's studies programs. So, 
you know, and nobody's doing that with the men's rights movement. This is actually a grassroots movement. We don't have uh, much support in in our governments. We don't have, you know, the the uh, president of you know Obama. Uh, you know, he he tabled the proposal for a White House Council on Men and Boys indefinitely. You know, maybe we'll get to it at some point in the future. Um, you know, like it, we don't have any of that. Um, we don't have big, wealthy, you know, big donors uh, to our cause. And we have zero institutional support. And we have the entire mainstream media telling people that we're a bunch of haters who want to make it legal to beat and rape women. And, and, uh, and, and they get spots on national TV. Um, there was one, a women's studies professor in Calgary, who essentially said that people like Paul and I what we really want, what we're really advocating are sexual rights for men. That is, and these are her words, meaning if only we could have sex with whoever and whatever we want, whenever we want to, then maybe we wouldn't have to rape you. That is a direct quote that she spoke on Canada's national broadcaster, right? And the interviewer didn't even bat an eyelash, didn't even look at her funny. And you know what? Before we get give the impression that the only feminists are women, uh, we've got some male feminists who are every bit as troubled, I would say, um, as as some of the women. We've got Michael Kimmel, for example, who is a sociologist, and he his theory, which has been uh, um, promoted by the New York Times and many other publications, uh, his theory is that men do bad things because they have this sense of aggrieved entitlement to privilege. Now, yep. uh, of course, he's talking mainly about the you know children of alpha males because other most men don't have any privileges at all. But they, but I I agree in the sense that there's a sense of aggrieved entitlement, but it's not to privilege; it's to a healthy identity, and yep. the and the. The only possible way of having a healthy identity is to be able to make at least one contribution to society that is A, distinctive, B, necessary, and C, publicly valued. And if you can't do that, you cannot have a healthy identity. And there are too many men, boys and men, who are saying, well, if I can't have a healthy identity, I'll just take a negative one. Thank you very much. And they're the ones who who abandon society, uh, who, Mm who... um, they turn against women, but also against society as a whole. They they commit suicide at a rate three or four times higher than that of women. They drop out of school. They don't graduate from college, and they become uh, an underclass. Um, now, this is a huge number of people who are um, being denied what I would say is a fundamental right, and that is to have a healthy identity. Yes. I, I agree wholeheartedly, and you know it's one thing, and I've I've said this a, a number of times before. Um, it, it's one thing to be a grown man with a healthy sense of self, right? To to be subjected to this like constant negative bombardment, um, you know, of you know, men are the problem, men are the problem, men are the problem, and men need to fix themselves so they're no longer a problem. Um, but uh, but imagine if you're like an eight-year-old boy, and I actually told this to Michael Kimmel during a question and answer session. Um, you know, I said, you guys throw words like toxic masculinity around like they're confetti. 
Like they're just completely harmless. And he says, well, you know, if you took a women's study or a gender studies course, you'd understand that it really doesn't mean what it sounds. And I'm like, eight-year-old boys, right, don't take gender studies courses, right? And even if they did, they don't have the sophistication of thinking to be able to wrap their head around the pretzelization of reality that you guys are teaching in those courses, right? So that they can walk away after hearing the term toxic masculinity and think, well, they're not actually talking about men. Well, that's a debatable point. I mean, I think that Michael Kimmel does talk about men um, because he's basically saying that if they don't adopt toxic masculinity, if they try and reform or become better men, it basically means they become like women. Yeah, agreed. So he's not presenting them with a kind of masculinity that actually would be distinctive and necessary and publicly valued. The best best that men can hope for is to become honorary women. Well, and but they can't become honorary women. Women can become honorary men um, because women, you know, like what is it that men sort of, you know, like what the, the beginning point of the entire business of life, right? You know, if you're going to assume that, you know, the, the entire purpose and the, the entire driving force between, you know, a, behind all of our instincts and our impulses and our drives and all of that is essentially – the stuff that led to us being here in the first place. So it's the stuff that helped our parents live long enough to have kids and then have those kids and then raise those kids to adulthood, right? That, that's, that's the entire thing. That's, that's the paradigm. Um, and anything that's not useful towards that eventually just kind of gets watered out of the gene pool um, because it didn't get passed on. So if you're looking at that and you're looking at that, that's the name of the game, Right then you're looking at women being the ones with a spreadsheet. They have a spreadsheet of what they need um, because they are, they are the ones who put in, the more, put in more calories, they put in more effort, they put in more risk, they put in more of pretty much everything, at least in the biological sense in terms of ha- passing on genes, right? And uh, so women are like the landlord and men are like the prospective tenant. And the tenant you know, or women are like the employer and men are the ones who want to get the, the contract with the employer. Um, they, they want to be hired on. Um, they want to fill in those spots on that woman's spreadsheet, right, that are empty or that she would rather have somebody else fill. And so if you, if you deprive, and she's the one with the spreadsheet, so she's always going to, and she can fill the other, all the spots herself if she wants, um, if she can manage it. Right? But he needs to make himself necessary in some way to her in order for him to have any sort of value. And so I think that th- there's a real conundrum in the sense of, you know, we think that society was sort of constructed entirely by men to benefit men and whatever. But, you know, when, it, when you look out on the individual level of men and women interacting, it's almost always men saying, I can be useful to you in this way and that way, and I can do this for you and that for you so that you don't have to do it yourself, and please give me the opportunity to pass on my genes. Yes, I agree. And what I said that uh, the only alternative for men is to become honorary women, I meant that in a facetious way. 
Um, oh, yeah. It works. It works only on the on the personal level to the extent that men like Kimmel um, can say, "Hey, I'm a feminist. I'm a good guy, not like those." identity as a man he, just, he might get women to pin medals on him um but uh most men cannot even do that well kimmel can only get away with well, it it's high status now having a girls in the boy scouts uh the point of feminizing men yes um no well you know okay i did a little reading about the boy scouts of america i would agree that it, boy scouts in canada yes that it, it was it was a political decision and it was a very feministy political decision. The Boy Scouts of America, which is a new thing, um, I think that was actually a business decision because they've had falling enrollment, they've had falling membership for years and years and years and years and years. The reason why and, they, uh, they have, the, well, I'll tell you what though, the reason why they have falling membership is they've gone away from the basic principles of the Boy Scouts and. The, it was actually the Mormon Church, which had the largest section of Boy Scouts, that said, "Hey, wait a minute! Right. You're pulling away from the basic principles set well over a hundred years ago, which was Christian-based, and we're pulling out our people." Because mm-hmm. I know my church itself did the very same thing, because they said, "You are no longer following the basic tenets and the principles of what we've tried to make these boys into into men," and mm-hmm. letting I... in the um, changing the morals. And then allowing girls to go in is the effeminization of these boys. Because if they are in there, they act differently when they're around girls. If it's just boys, oh, yeah. boys, they they develop completely differently. Now you mix girls in there, and it, it's going to arrest, as you mentioned earlier, Karen, their development. Their development and actually, as the, a man. The, this thing called the, the feminization of society is not even a recent phenomenon uh, because even in the 19th century, people complained about the feminization of men. For example, <clears throat> the churches began preaching a gospel of, you know, Jesus being the meek and the mild, and and there was a rejection of any kind of um, uh, sense that to be a Christian was something difficult, and that you had to um, have a kind of strength for it. The imagery was all basically feminized. Now, what happened in the 19th century was that men said, we're going to establish men's lodges to um, become our replacement for the churches, which have no no room in them, basically, for men. Um, so these lodges developed. Originally, they were only for men. Sometimes they had, you know, um, uh, uh, support female auxiliary. women, yeah. but basically they were men's groups, and they gave men space to be men. Agreed, agreed. You know, like, and but you can you can see that uh, that you know politically minded women, and I'm not going to call them necessarily feminists, but women of a political bent, really, really dislike the idea of men alone, unsupervised by women in a space all by themselves it's almost like they think that these men are plotting um that they're they're getting together and twirling their mustaches and plotting on how you know they're going to get into trouble or or make problems or whatever so there's deep distrust of male only spaces on the part of certain politically or an envy of them or and there uh, was some of that i think in. in the in the temperance movement um because yeah. I'll, i mean there was a problem <laughs> 
you know, alcoholism is a problem. But um, yeah. one of the, the larger cultural contexts in which it worked itself out was that um, there was something wrong with um, any kind of alcohol consumption, even though some ethnic communities made it a family event, not something that was separated by, by sex or age. Um, and there was, um, there was a kind of uh, hostility to men throughout that movement. Oh yes, absolutely. And when you when you look at too, I mean, like you can go all the way back to like what sixteen seventy six or something like that. Um, there was a petition to the King of England by the women of of London, um, or the women of England, the good women of England, uh, to ban coffee houses because men, the men in these women's lives would rather spend time with other men at a coffee house than come home and. You know, it was, it's hilarious because if you read the document, it's, it's the most amazing thing. You know, you have to sort of wrap your head around the kinds of um, analogies and euphemisms that they use. Um, but one of the lines is, never did the men of Britain uh, brag about uh, wear bigger trousers but have so little in them of any value, uh-huh. right? And just absolute like just it was laced with sexual shaming they they brought up that oh we heard that the king of spain had to pass a law recently um that that uh banned his subjects from performing the grand kindness on their wives more than nine times a night nine times we can barely get even once from our men because of this infernal coffee Right, so it was all about how men aren't doing what women want. King, do something about it. And uh, I just found the entire exercise just absolutely hilarious um, because I think that there really is this sort of resentment and irritation, and you even see it with women who they're they think they're entitled to a girls' night out without their man along, but oh my goodness, if he wants to go and and watch football with his buddies, boy, she resents that. And, and it's very, very strange to me. Um, especially given that on a girl's night out, a man would just, he wouldn't even want to be involved. Right. Uh, like he, he's just like, no, 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 you go and do your thing. I don't even want to know what you do. So meanwhile, oh, we're oh, at universities that um, refuse any any um, university space on the campus for any men's for any men's group, for fear that they are plotting to um, reestablish a patriarchy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we got so a few essentially... minutes left here. I just want to. Oh, I was going to say, uh, I just got a few minutes left here. I'm looking at the clock now. We're just uh, under nine minutes. Um, I want to just switch the subject a little bit over because I saw a video video of your of an interview you did a number of years back. And um, I was surprised on your stance on gay marriage, Dr. Paul. I want you to address that issue and how it affects the growth of boys into men. Yes, that's an interesting question. Uh, well, I, I mean, I am gay, and I don't disapprove of gay relationships at all. In fact, I, I, I'd love to promote them. Um, what I disapprove of is the idea that... Um, two mothers can do as good a job as a mother and a father. Um, and um, I, I, it, you see, that, that position depends on the idea that fathers are assistant mothers. Uh, their, their function is no different, 
And uh, if we could just get more men to take out the garbage and, and do the diapers, then uh, everything would be just fine. And I think that there is a distinct function for men. And that, but it's not something that kicks in uh, immediately during infancy. It's something that um, as children grow older and they, the more contact they have with the larger world, um, somebody has to bring them into the larger world with the sense that they have to earn respect. Uh, so it's not about unconditional love. Even if fathers do have unconditional love, which many do, um, but that isn't their function. Their function is to make their children earn the respect of other people. So, um, and it's not, it's, it's a hard job because it doesn't provide this kind of immediate gratification that unconditional love has. Um, if, you're, if a father lives long enough, his grown son might come over and say, you know, Dad, you really taught me a lot of useful things that have made me um, happy and successful. But um, it, but it's uh, it doesn't have the immediate rewards, but it is just as essential and just as important, um, and it starts gradually in childhood and becomes more and more important. So I think that the idea of men as uh, fathers as being assistant mothers, at best, at worst, of course, they're potential molesters. Um, we you know we really have to really think completely the whole superfluous, thing. Yeah. or superfluous. That's right. Yeah, so we well, have I mean, single and, mothers by choice. Yeah. At one time. Well, he, yeah, go on. At one time, that would that would be looked at as as an incredibly socially irresponsible thing to do, That's and right. essentially a sentence, a way of sentencing your child to a lifetime of misery, um, at, or at least a lifetime of being handicapped in some way, and not just by the social stigma. Um, but also by depriving them of a father, depriving right. them of that influence, and you know, like, it, and it's not even just teaching kids respect or to earn respect. It's also teaching kids body confidence. It's teaching yes. kids, yes, you're um, right. You know, the 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 you know, Jordan Peterson uses the word encourage, but I think he uses it in its original form. It's kind of been watered down to mean. Um, something different, but encourage means to make courageous. And this is one of the things that fathers um, tend to do, that they tend to contribute to their kids. It's you go to the park, you see the kid climbing on the monkey bars, you see the mom there going, don't climb too high, and you see the dad going, climb higher, you can do it. Right. You know, right. don't be scared. Yeah. And uh, And so I think that there's a push and a pull there between mothers and fathers with their kids. And that push kind of away, play a little further away, you know, you skinned your knee, get back on the bike. Um, those kinds of things that, that, and the wrestling and the throwing the baby up in the air and all of these things, right? That now, of course, trust, of course, the people who you know, argued with me about, about gay marriage would always come up with the idea that they, they would almost invariably say, well, yes, but can't, um, can't a woman do that just as well as a man? Um, well, yes, sometimes the problem I is The problem is, I mean, in theory, maybe that is true, but in fact, um, to get a woman to um, create distance between herself and an infant or even a child is would take a major cultural effort, I think, to, to, yeah. to, to achieve that. And we're nowhere well, near I'm... the point where that cultural effort is being made. 
I'm a very atypical mother. Well, you know, I was the one. I was the one who wrestled with the kids. I was the one who threw them up in the air. I was the one who, you know, told them to, you know, rub a little dirt in it and and get back on the bike. I was I was the one who was you know I had to do a major thing to convince my husband at the time to let them go to the park alone. Um, you know, which was only just across the street. Uh, you know, and and play unsupervised. So essentially. Um, you know, like there are a few women out there who are like that. I think that there are maybe 10 to 15% of women who are masculine in their temperament and 10 to 15% of men who are feminine in theirs. Um, you know, so it's not a broad brush, you know, black and white kind of thing. But, you know, on the whole, on the average, in aggregate, men contribute things to the upbringing of children that women generally don't or that women generally don't understand have value. They don't realize those things have value. And so they don't make the effort to actually contribute them. And uh, so, Karen, I, I, yeah. That's, I was going to say, go, I'm, go I'm, I'm probably along the same lines as, as you are, where I'm more adventurous uh, than normal. And I'm the one that uh, when I go to take the car to the mechanic, my husband go talk to her. She, she'll she tell you what's going on. Um, I'm the go. one that does the handyman. But my current husband is, is like that too now. Uh, but I just wanted to mention that I extended the show just a few extra minutes because we're having so much fun here. Uh, but there's a comment mm-hmm. in the chat room for you, Karen. Uh, one of our listeners finds you very sexy. So, you know, you got an admirer out there. <laughs> Oh, well, you know, I get that a lot, and I honestly don't understand it. I'm, like, menopausal. I'm 47 years old, for crying out loud. Um, you know, so I, you know, when when I was young and hot, I might have thought, you know, he's he's attracted to, you know, my looks, but I, I think this guy is probably just attracted to my brains. <laughs> Oh, I wish we had Listen, I would be happy if somebody were attracted to my 70-year-old body. Uh, I don't see anything <laughs> wrong with that. In fact, I think that for men, being seen as sexual objects uh, would be a distinct improvement. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, like to actually look at the male body and and say, and not just like the ideal male body, but the male body in general. I mean, I look at my guy here, and he is significantly younger than me, um, but he's he's in no way a Brad Pitt. Um, you know, he's he's got hair in places where men might not want. He just he's just yelling at me from the bit, from the office. Hey. Um, you know, he's got hair in places where men don't generally want hair, and he's got less hair in places where men generally do want hair, and, you know, and he's a big guy. Um, uh, Paul would probably describe him as a bear if he ever met him, um, and if my guy was inclined in that way. Um, but, uh, you know, I look at him, and I'm like, yeah, there is something there that is just it just really appeals to me. And like I, men of all types, you know, I look at their physicality and I think, you know, there's, there's always going to be something to like there. Um, and of course, there's something, there's something important under, underlying this discussion. Uh, when I mentioned the word objectification, I didn't have time to say what I meant by that. There's the, you know, we all know this, this talk uh, about the objectification of women, but you know, 
as if it as if it's something inherently evil. But sex works through temporary objectification. We are bodies, and in the moment of sex, we do enjoy each other as bodies. There's nothing inherently yeah. evil about that. It's only when we treat people as objects in every in every aspect of life that it becomes pathological. True, and you know, I I don't even like the word objectification. I prefer the word sexualization. Um, you know, because you know you're seeing somebody as sexual, as a sexual being that you're sexual attract sexually attracted to. Um, but that doesn't mean that you have erased every other aspect of their being from your consciousness. Um, hopefully not. Um, most people not. Um, it's just that that aspect of their being takes priority in terms of your sexual attract, uh, attraction to them in the moment. Um, but, you know, as far as objectification goes, I mean, like, we objectify people all the time. Of you know, I don't, I don't want to get money, to know example. on a deep... Yeah, on a deep personal level, the guy who delivers my pizza, I might chit-chat exactly. with him a little bit, you know, but it's it's not like I particularly care about what's going on with his home life and whether his parents loved him enough and hugged him right. enough and, you know, whether he has any problems in his life or anything like that. Um, I, I don't care. He's just He's just the vehicle of delivery of the pizza that I want and I'll have a polite interaction with him and then that's that. He's gone. And that's a good thing, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it's the only oh, thing possible. Guys, guys, we had so much fun on the show today. Got to have the two of you back. And I'm glad I was able to get the two of you together on the show and talk to each other. So now maybe you'll pick up the phone oh, and I call will. each other. Uh, if if, you, <laughs> could, if makes... you could get us back on another show, that would be great. Get All right. Well, I'll get a hold of of, uh, of your guys over there and get the two of you back on. I, I just sat back and just <laughs> let it go. Oh well, you know, it, I, I, I'm I'm sorry we both were so talkative. I know you were trying to jump in a few times and 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 also just, we're having a really hard. Time. If you don't see somebody, it's hard to know when someone else is getting ready to say something. That's true, but That's true. you know my my call my colleagues at Honey Badger Radio call call it the Karen train. Um, it never stops. <laughs> it it just keeps going down the tracks. So, well, Karen, people can find you at avoiceformen dot com, and Doctor no. Paul, people can find all of your books up on Amazon. Yes, yeah, people um, for some you're, reason. You're, People imagine that I'm connected with a voice for men, but I there's no connection at all. Yeah, no, it's it's just we support a voice for men supports your work for sure. Okay, um, and, all right, and, but I'm not a member, yeah. so no, I don't have no. a, and, a and, I don't have a space there. No, I I'm I have been a contributor in the past, but I think the best place that that people can find me is just my YouTube channel, uh, the notorious YouTube channel Girl Writes What. Um, which is where you'll find uh, most of my best content, um, my best uh, sort of video lectures and stuff like that. And I actually am prob. I can't. I don't. Can we use cuss words on this show? <laughs> I try not to, right. but I'll let you know that in the show description there is. I have it. Your YouTube channel titled "Girls Write What," and for Dr. Cole, I have a link on your description for your books. Good. Okay, good. Because I do have a blog, but it has a bad word in it. So. 
All right. Well, I want to thank both of you for joining us, and I hope you both have a great weekend. And I'm going to see thank what I can you. do to how soon I can get you back on, because right now I'm booked straight through to the middle of June right now with guests. So I'm 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 just hitting bang wang out the ballpark here. <laughs> so I want Excellent. to thank both of you for well, joining us. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having right. me. You've been very considerate. Thank you, sir. But way more right. considerate exactly. than necessary. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Paul Nathanson, check out his books over up on Amazon. He's got four great books out there. Uh, check out Karen, her website, her YouTube uh, channel, Girls Write What. Curtis, boy, did I let the show go. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. I had so much fun today. Absolutely so much fun. They did a great I mean, job. We had people in. Yeah, yes, guest host. I'm serious. They should put a, a show together, Karen and Dr. Paul, called the KP Hour. Man, the two of them are great, absolutely wonderful. Our first guest, uh, uh, Edwin Duterte, uh, the election is the uh, absentee ballot is open in California District 43 currently. He's challenging Maxine Waters. Check out his website, too. And Curtis will be back on uh, Tuesday again. Let me see who we got uh, lined up for Tuesday. Uh, Tuesday, we've Alex. got Alex Newman joining us, and uh, also we have uh, Catherine Templeton, who is Catherine. running for governor in South Carolina here. As a matter of fact, our absentee ballot is open as of this week, and the election, the primary will be June 12th. Uh, she's got a couple of challengers against uh, Henry McMasters, who is the governor. And then Dan Perkins will join us for the final half hour. I mean, I'm serious that our shows are booked straight through uh, June 12th through the mid of 12 of June. So I want to thank everyone that was listening in the chat room. I saw people in the studios trying to call in. And unfortunately, because of the way the conversation was going, I wasn't really able to take uh, callers. So I want to apologize to those who couldn't get through. I want to thank those that were listening up over on YouTube and Facebook and you guys over here on DTR. You guys are the best. God bless you all. So I'm going to leave you for the weekend. And just remember, this is the final days today and tomorrow of National Law Enforcement Week. Remember the men and women that have given their lives to protect and serve. And also remember those that are currently actively out there serving. So with that, I will leave you with when the roll is called up yonder. And I will say good night and God bless. 